did you know that it's estimated that last year there was something like over 160,000 Christians uh, who lost their life simply because they were Christians, they were martyred. 160,000. Now, what's that? That's, that's the capacity of the Olympic Stadium at Homebush uh, twice over. That was last year, 160,000. And did you know that as I speak, um, it's estimated that something like 200 million, 200 million Christians around the world are currently uh, suffering interrogation um, or arrest or some kind of harassment uh, simply because they are Christians. You know, I hear these sort of figures and it seems like it's a reality that's just so far away from my own Christian experience. I might be wrong, but I don't know of anybody here this evening who's ever uh, lost their job or uh, lost property, anybody who um, has ever had their blood shed on account of their faith. I might be wrong. Generally speaking, I don't think that we know persecution here in this country, and I, for one, am very, very thankful about that. And yet I can't help but wonder why persecution is so alien to us. After all, it was Jesus himself who said, uh, if I am your master and I am persecuted, then how can you expect anything else? It's in 2 Timothy that we read, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So why is it then that on the whole we don't suffer for our faith? What's going on? Well, I suspect that in part it's simply because we live in a country that has a long Christian heritage and in a country that has laws which protect us as Christians. But although I'd like to think that that was the whole answer, I suspect that there's something else going on too. I suspect that people in our country don't treat us differently simply because we're not seen as different. And I suspect that we're not seen as different simply because we're scared to be different. Scared of the consequences that being different will bring. You know, why is it, he, why is it that I, I could be out on the street and um, hear somebody take the name of Christ in vain and, and yet so rarely, if ever, have I, would I ever say, you know, hang on a second, that's, that's my Lord you're demeaning. Why is it we find it so hard to talk openly about Jesus in the, in the workforce? You know, a guy after the service this morning um, was very honest and he told me about how his wife rings him up at work and they'll be having a conversation and suddenly it'll turn to a Christian conversation and so he lowers his voice just in case somebody else might hear. I can relate to that. Why is it... Uh, we might choose to openly say grace before a meal at home, but if we're out in a restaurant, out in public, we suddenly feel funny about that. Why is it that we find it so hard to tell our friends and our families that unless they repent and unless they put their faith in Jesus, they're going to go to hell? Why is it so hard? Well, the simple answer is, I think, I think we're scared. Scared of the consequences, scared of the consequences that being different will bring. Scared of the ridicule, 
scared of the ostracism, scared of being told we're wrong. You know, maybe it would have been more honest for us to have sung, sit down, sit down for Jesus, us cowards of the cross. Cover up his royal banner, or you might suffer loss. Keep quiet and immobile. Your faith let no one see, or you'll be known as different. We can't have that, can we? We're not persecuted because we're not different. We're not different because we're scared of persecution. Well, if ever ever there was a book in the Bible that can help us to be courageous Christians, it's the book of Ezra. And it's to this book that we're now going to turn our attention. But before we do, please pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word this evening. And we pray that it would embolden us this day to fear none but you. For we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you don't already have your Bibles open, can I encourage you to do that? It would help you greatly tonight to have a Bible open in front of you. We're going to start by looking at Ezra chapter 4, verse 1. You can find that on page 336 of the small print, 736 of the large print Bibles. And as you turn there to Ezra chapter 4, let's think about the story so far. In fact, let's go back a little bit before the book of Ezra. You'll remember that there the Israelites were. They were living in the promised land. However, they disobeyed God. You'll remember that they worshipped the idols of the other nations. And so God warned them to stop. They didn't. And so God punished them. He punished them by allowing a foreign king, King Nebuchadnezzar, to come in and to destroy Jerusalem. He destroyed Jerusalem. And you might remember he also destroyed that magnificent temple built by Solomon. And so the people of Israel were taken off by this Babylonian king, King Nebuchadnezzar, taken off to live in exile in Babylon, no longer in the promised land. And as we reach the book of Ezra, we then jump forward 50 years and we find that the Babylonian empire, well, it's now been swallowed up by the new bully on the block, the Persian empire. Now the Israelites, well, they're still in exile, they're still there in Babylon, But now they have a different king, a Persian king, King Cyrus. Now, King Cyrus, he has a different policy to the Babylonian kings. Instead of keeping the Israelites there in exile with him, he allows them to go home, to go back to Israel. They're still to be his subjects, but they're allowed to go home. And they're even allowed to rebuild the temple back in the promised land. Last week, I'm sure you remember, there was, uh, what, 50,000 Israelites that chose to come back home. And we saw how they set about rebuilding the temple. And last week, we got as far as the temple foundations being built. And it seemed that God's plans to dwell among his people would soon be fulfilled. God's people now in God's land, and soon God would be dwelling among them. Uh, as he dwelt there in his temple. But today we're introduced to some other players in this drama. We're introduced to the people who now live in the promised land. 
So when the Israelites were first moved out of the promised land, there were other people who were moved in. Uh, people from other parts of the, of the empire. Well, it's these people who have now moved in who approach the Jews who have just moved back in and they make them an offer. It's an offer to help them rebuild the temple. But it's an offer that is refused. Read with me from chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel, that's one of the Jewish leaders, and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you build because, like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Well, did you notice there that these people who are now living in the land, the Jews' new neighbours, they actually not only offer to help them build the temple, but they also make a claim to worship the same God as the Israelites. Did you notice that? So then doesn't it seem a little bit rude to you that the Jews would knock back this very kind offer? A little bit unneighbourly perhaps, you know, here they are, they want to help, they want to be good neighbours. And as we're reminded, at 6.30 every weeknight, neighbours should be there for one another. (laughs) That's when good neighbours become good friends and all that sort of stuff. But in fact... The choice of the Israelites here is actually a good one. It's a good one. See, it's not uncommon for people who have been moved into somebody else's land to then take on their gods, as these people have. But it's also not uncommon for these sort of people to hold on to their old gods too. And I'm sure that's what's happening here. And don't forget, it was Israel's getting mixed up with foreign gods that saw them get kicked out of the promised land in the first place. So here they've got this second chance and they're not going to squander it now by getting mixed up with this bunch of idol-worshipping pagans. And it's a good thing that they didn't. Because as we're going to see through the rest of today's passages, passage, uh, these pagans are now going to oppose the work of the Israelites from this point forward. In fact, it's going to be something like a hundred years of ongoing opposition that will come from these people through the reign of various kings of Persia. Read with me from verse 4. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They hired counsellors to work against them and frustrate their plans during... The entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And at the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, they lodged an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and then we go on to read all about this opposition that they gave. You get the picture though, don't you? Life back in the promised land was no picnic for the Jews. They were facing sustained opposition to their work, to the work of God, through 
reign of king after king after king, something like a, and after a, something like a hundred years, if you were to, to go to Jerusalem, you would see even after a hundred years after the return, the city walls and large parts of the city would still lie in rubble because of this opposition. A hundred years. But now in our passage, what we're going to do is we're going to zero in on one particular period in that 100 years of opposition. We're going to focus on a time that's just 20 years after the return of the Israelites. It's a time when King Darius sat on the Persian throne. Now, Darius, he was two kings after King Cyrus, who first allowed them to go home. And it's while Darius was king that the opposition wrought by the Jews' neighbours actually meant that the whole rebuilding of the temple was brought to a complete standstill. Read with me verse 24. Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now we need to understand the full weight of this. So we need to remember that what we're talking about here is the temple, the temple of God, the house of God, the temple central in God's plans to be with his people. The temple is where God would reside with his people. You see, no temple, no God dwelling with his people. It's as simple as that. And for a moment, it seems like Israel's enemies have won. The temple rebuilding has been brought to a standstill. Well, thankfully, it's not the end of the story. Because the temple does, again, begin to be rebuilt. And this rebuilding, it's prompted by the appearance of the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And they come up on the scene and they tell the people to get back to work. To go on, get back and rebuild the temple despite the opposition that they might face. Read with me, chapter 5, verse 1. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Ido, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Josedach, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. So you see, it's God who, through his prophets, prompts the people to get back to work, rebuild the temple, which they do. God who prompts them through the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. So everything seems to be back on track again, doesn't it? Well, for a moment or two anyway. Because now we're introduced to another chap. A chap named... Tatnai. Tatnai, he is the pagan governor of this part of the world. He's the eyes and the ears of the king, if you like. It's his job to make sure everybody's behaving themselves in this corner of the empire. And he comes along and he sees the Jews building the temple and he goes up and he questions them about what they're doing. Look with me from verse 3. Verse 3. At that time, Tatnai governor of Trans-Euphrates, and that other bloke and their associates went to them and asked, who authorised you to rebuild this temple and restore this structure? 
They also asked, what are the names of the men constructing this temple? Boy, now, there's a list you wouldn't want to find your name on, isn't it? This is worrying stuff for the Jews. You see, if this report gets back to Darius, well, it could be interpreted as seditious behaviour. It could be interpreted as a rebellion in the making. Darius might stop them, or worse, he could crush them. But then in what is really a key verse for the entire passage that we're looking at this evening, we're told this. Look with me, please, at verse 5. We're told... But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews and they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius and his written reply be received. You see, this construction site, it wasn't uh, shut down immediately as it so easily could have. No. Why not? Well, because of God. Because the eye of God was watching on. And so because of God, the rebuilding of the temple, it went unhindered until Tatnai could write his report and then post it off and wait for Darius to read it and respond and then send back his letter. During this whole time, the rebuilding of the temple was able to continue. And as for the contents of this letter that Tatnai writes and sends off to the king, well, in it, he informs the king, of course, what's been happening back there in Jerusalem. But he also includes the defence that the Jews offer regarding their actions. See, in the letter he reports that the Jews are claiming that King Cyrus, who reigned those 20 years earlier, they're claiming that he actually allowed them to return from exile and rebuild the temple. That's their defence. And we know it's all true. And so Tatnai, he concludes his letter with a request that the king now go and search the royal archives and see if this is indeed what King Cyrus said. Read with me verse 17. Verse 17. Now if it pleases the king, let a search be made in the royal archives of Babylon to see if King Cyrus did in fact issue a decree to rebuild this house of God in Jerusalem. Then let the king send us his decision in this matter. Well, what must have been going on in the minds of the Jews while they waited for the king to send his reply? Now, would the king listen to their defence? Would the king search the royal archives? It's been something like 20 years since Cyrus reigned, so... Even if the king did search the archives, would anything be found there? Well, as it turns out, the king did order a search of the archives and there was a scroll found, not in Babylon, but in another city, in the city of Ecbatana. Read with me, chapter 6, verse 1. King Darius then issued an order and they searched in the archives stored in the treasury at Babylon. A scroll was found in the citadel of Ecbatana in the province of Media. And then we're told what was written on the scroll. And it was just as the Jews said it was. This was the proof that the Israelites needed. The proof that King Cyrus did in fact give them permission to return home and build the temple. And so having found this scroll, 
Darius does write back to Tatnai. He writes back with his royal decree. And in it, not only does he give the Jews to go on rebuilding the temple, but he also offers them help in what must have been beyond anyone's wildest dreams or imagination. You've got to have a look at this with me. From verse 6. Now then, Tatnai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and that other bloke in you, their fellow officials of that province, stay away from there. Do not interfere with the work on this temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I hereby decree what you are to do for these elders of the Jews in the construction of this house of God. Ready for this? The expenses of these men are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury from the revenues of trans-Euphrates so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, male lambs for burnt offerings to the God of heaven and wheat, salt, wine and oil as requested by the priests in Jerusalem must be given them daily without fail so that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. And then in what can only be described as just a little bit of imperial overkill, he goes on to say, Furthermore, I decree that if anyone changes this edict, a beam is to be pulled out from his house and he is to be lifted up and impaled on it. And for this crime, his house is to be made a pile of rubble. Did you notice that? Anybody who tries to stop the house of God going up is going to have their house come crumbling down. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who lifts a hand to change this decree or to destroy this temple in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have decreed it. Let it be carried out with diligence. Wow. Can you imagine the face of Tatnai when he first read this letter? Can you imagine the face of the Israelites when they first heard this royal decree. For so long now, there has been opposition that has made the completion of the temple seem so improbable. And yet in the end, the construction of the temple is not only allowed to go ahead unhindered, but it would now be carried out with the full support, the full funding, the security of a pagan king. Now those who once did everything they could to oppose God's work would be forced to assist in it being carried out to completion. And how do the Israelites respond to the temple's completion? Well, they dedicate the temple and then they do the only thing they could do. They celebrate with great joy. Now God's people were there once again in God's land. Once again, God was dwelling with them. What great significance it must have been for the Jews the first time they celebrated Passover back in the land, the temple rebuilt again. After all, it was a festival that was meant to remind the Israelites of the way they'd been brought into the promised land in the first place. Well, here they were again, brought back into the land, 
Once again, God's people were in God's land and God was dwelling with them. The Jews could see God's hand in all of this, directing it from beginning to end. And so they celebrated with great joy. Read with me from verse 22. For seven days the Jews celebrated with joy the Feast of Unleavened Bread because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria so that he assisted them in the work on the house of God, the God of Israel. The Israelites' plans had been opposed. Yes, yes, it's true. They had been persecuted, bullied, maligned. Yes, yes, that's true too. But God's plans for them had been brought to fulfilment nonetheless because the eye of their God was watching on. Well, it's a nice story, isn't it? It's a nice story with a nice ending. I like those sort of stories. They're the good ones. But perhaps it's a, a little bit of a story that might seem just a little bit far away from us, a little bit distant. Two and a half thousand years ago, other side of the world. But you know, for us Christians who live here in Sydney in 2006, on this side of the cross, this story is more than just a nice history lesson. It's actually a story that can really help us, a story that can really help us especially to be courageous Christians. You see, Ezra is a bit of a snapshot, a snapshot of God's purposes for this world. It's a snapshot of God's plans to have his people in his place with him dwelling with them. What we see there in Ezra, you see, is nothing less than a snapshot of heaven. It's a poor fuzzy snapshot, yes, but it's a snapshot nonetheless. And that opposition to God's plans that we see there in Ezra well, it's just a, a snapshot of the opposition to God's plans that has always existed. Especially an op, a, a snapshot of the opposition that launched its most vicious attack that day that it saw the Son of God nailed to a tree. In Ezra, we see the way opposition to God's plans never takes God by surprise. We see his eye is always watching on. Because there he was, so clearly, behind the scenes, directing the play from beginning to end, bringing about a result that is so good that no one could ever have dreamt or imagined it. It's a snapshot of what God did through the death of Jesus. On your outline, read with me Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 23 to 24. Because there we see the way that God's hand was behind Jesus' death too. This man, Jesus, we read, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. 
You see, in the most evil opposition that the world has ever thrown at God's plans, God was there behind the the scenes, bringing bringing about his own good purposes, bringing about his own victory. This is why Jesus could say to his disciples in John 16, and you'll read this on your outline, this is why Jesus could say to his disciples, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And of course, as we heard in our second Bible reading tonight, because of this, because of what Jesus has done, because he has conquered the world, We know that there is now nothing that has ever existed or that will ever exist that could ever possibly separate us from the love of God. Friends, heaven is ours. In just a little while, we will be in heaven. We shall be in God's place as God's people, dwelling in God's midst. Forever. Never again shall we hear of opposition to his plans. You see, friends, when you think about it, we really can be courageous Christians, can't we? We don't have any reason to cower in fear, to shrink back, to be quiet or immobile, to sit down for Jesus. Oh yeah, if we stand up for him, then we will face opposition, don't get me wrong. We will face ridicule, ostracism, whatever. But we need to remember that the decisive battle has already been fought and won. Friends, you cannot be harmed by this world. Any opposition that you face, we must describe at best as pointless and pitiful. You know who triumphs in the end. So friends, take heart and let's get on and let's boldly live for Christ. Let's be different and let's do it all in his strength. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We praise you for your goodness to us that from the very beginning you had a plan and that plan included us. That it was your will to send your son Jesus to die for us, that we might be forgiven and that we might be your people with you in heaven forever. Thank you that even when the world launched its most vicious attack, your eye was watching on. You saw your son nailed to the tree And you turned that around to bring about your own good intentions. Lord, please forgive us those times when we are scared to be different as Christians. Scared of the consequences that that will bring. Embolden us now, we pray, as we consider all that you have won for us in Christ Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.